You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Guidepost. It's just me here today, Tony. I want to thank you all for listening. Uh, Don't forget, if you have any comments, and I think there's going to be some comments about this podcast. I'm really excited for it. Please don't forget to send it in to comments at saltwaterguidesassociation.org. And if we read it on the air, you will win a brand new pair of Costa Del Mar sunglasses. So it doesn't get any easier than that. So today, I kind of have a special guest, and I'm going to tell you who he is, and I'm going to tell you why he's here, and then I'm just going to cut him loose and let him go, because there's there's really some some interesting stuff. Um, <clears throat> you know, uh, this, this person and myself, uh, this is just a, a social media thing, lots of mutual friends, um, and, and, you know, we became friends on social media, and I was watching what he was doing, completely, uh, completely amazed by it. Um, and, and the story's incredible and I don't want to take anything away from it, but for me, uh, when we sign off of this podcast in 30 or 45 or 50 minutes, however long, long it takes, I, I want, I want y'all, you know, when you shut down your phone, uh, or turn your car off, I want you to think about, um, how you can make a difference because, uh, to me, this person I'm about to introduce is, a, a, a normal everyday person who is not formally trained in anything that he figured out. And he just kind of said, you know what, I, I got to do something because I don't like the way this is. And, and he, he may be, I'm not, I'm not overstating it. He may be um, really opening the doors to new ideas for restoration for some, some really important habitat that is just has been getting annihilated lately. So without further ado, I want to introduce everyone to a uh, friend of the guide associations, Rob Vasilith, hailing from Long Island, New York. How are you doing, Rob? Hi, thanks for having me today, Tony. Well, man, we are we are excited and I've primed the pump here. And, um, and you know, you let, we'll start at the start. You're a native Long Islander. You grew up loving the water. You grew up just fishing for anything around, you know, tell, tell us a little bit about you know, when that, when the passion began, and then we're going to get to go where you, we're going to go to where you took it. Okay. I, uh, I grew up, uh, on the island and, uh, very close to the water. And, and, uh, as a child, my father introduced me to fishing and, uh, I just loved fishing and, uh, I loved everything about it. So as a kid, I had two heroes and of course one was Superman and the other one was Jacques Cousteau. And uh, Jacques Cousteau was the first time I ever saw a shark underwater or an octopus. And uh, it was just fascinating to me. And uh, every time I would go down to the water, I would think about the things that Jacques Cousteau was showing on on, on TV there. And, uh, I, I just, you know, it was my favorite place to be. And it was our, uh, you know, I grew up in a, a modest family. And uh, it was our, our, our special time was going to the beach and, and enjoying everything about it. from Fishing, cooking our fish on the beach making sandcastles and just enjoying the, the, the surroundings. It was, it was really special. So 
you know, you, you grow up in long Island, um, you're kind of immersed in, you know, everything that has to do with the ocean. You're obviously surrounded by water just for, just for giggles. You know, when y'all went to the beach, when you were a kid, what kind of fish were you catching? How hard was it? You know, what, what, it, what differences from those memories to what you experienced today? Oh gosh. It's a dramatic difference from when I was a child. This is back in 1970, say mid 70s. So I had that bamboo rod with uh, no reel, just a, just a string and uh, no weight, just a hook. I would slowly lower my, uh, I bait into the water, probably a little worm or a piece of clam. And every time I put it down, it was always a, a blowfish coming up or, or a porgy or even a bluefish. And then uh, it, it was just great. And uh, my father would only let me take as many porgies as I was willing to scale and gut. <laughs> There's a lesson. Numbers down and, uh, and that, you know, so as I grew older, I, I realized I didn't have to scale and Got the fish. I just learned a way to flay them, and, and uh, I just love fishing. And uh, I, I'm lucky enough that I uh, I'm married and I have three children, and I I brought them into the world of fishing, and 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 uh, it, it's a it's a great life, and it's a great thing. But unfortunately, I'm always telling them stories about how great it used to be, and how many species they used to be, and it was just uh, you know it's sad that they don't get to see that. Rob, um. I think I think I'm on a I'm on a roll here because like the last five or six guests that we've had ha- have all brought their kids up within the first couple of minutes of the podcast, and every single one of them has said that's what changed me. You know that's that's where I just went and I was just happy to go fishing, but then when my when I took my kids the first few times, so much had changed. And I said, I got to do something, right? Like every single person kind of that has it like in their soul has that epiphany when they have their kid and you kind of feel guilty for them not experiencing the same thing. And you say, I got to, I got to at least try, right. To make things better. Well, uh, that's exactly what happened to me. I was, um, I was just a regular guy working and I was a sheet metal worker, a sign hanger in New York city. And uh, 9-11 happened, and uh, I, I was a, a responder. Uh, 24 hours after that attack, I was down there burning steel, something I knew how to do. And I went down there to save life. I didn't go down there to clean up a mess. And uh, cleaning up a mess is all it really was. It was very tragic, and a very dark place to be. And uh, when I walked out of there four days later, I looked over my shoulder when I made it up to about 14th Street, which is about a mile away. And it was sunny. And uh, I hadn't really seen the sun in four days. So I looked over my shoulder and uh, it was black. It wasn't a gray cloud. It was black. And I was like, wow, that's where I was. That black cloud's been hanging over my shoulder ever since. So after that, uh, or before that, if you would have said, you know, you're going to be an environmentalist. uh, an activist, an inventor, and you're gonna you're gonna try and save the world. And I would I would have laughed, I would have fell on the floor laughing. Uh, that wasn't in any of my thoughts. But after nine eleven, I I really started taking a look at things different. 
And uh, instead of turning my head away, I started to embrace the, the bad things I was seeing. And uh, one of them was definitely the fish. And uh, I was with my family and uh, we were down at this place called Sunken Meadow State Park. And it had a earthen dam that was put there on a tidal river uh, back in 1950 by a guy called Robert Moses, who Corp Blanche could build any roadways and do whatever he wanted. And uh, he decided he was going to dam up this tidal river for whatever reason. So um, we were there at the spot and my daughter happened to see a, a fish trying to get up this, this dam. And uh, she goes, Dad, I just saw a fish. And then I said, sure you did. And she goes, Dad, I just saw another one. And, uh, I says, okay, you got my attention now. So I straddled this little tiny culvert where it was about a three-foot pipe that dumped out of this dam into the, the waterway. And uh, sure as heck, uh, a fish was scooting up and fell out of these jagged rocks. And I picked it up and I, I was amazed how beautiful this fish was. It looked like a Menhaden or a bunker. Uh, and I knew it was a herring, but it was really shiny. And I, I took a good look at it, and then I threw it where it wanted to go, which was up this culvert. And I watched it swim right up. And, you know, you know how children are. They spend about 15 minutes on a subject at the most, and then they're off to building sandcastles or whatever it is. But I could not get that fish out of my mind. And uh, I started making phone calls. And I wound up getting a, a return phone. They, they explained to me that uh, there was a study open to see if this fish still existed. The name of the fish is called an alewife. And it's, a, it's oceanic fish, and it, but it, it comes back to where it was spawned to, uh, to hatch. And, and, and it looks to spawn in the same exact spot, which is a freshwater body. And, uh, so I was asked if I could find this fish again because they had the study open for three years to see if it was there. And they really wanted to know if it, I could find it. So I started doing my homework on this fish and I knew I, I, I had a job to do. And it was, it was kind of like fishing without a, without a fishing pole. Instead, I was using a camera and a pencil. And I found one fish in 135 acres of property. In the, and then I became, slowly but surely, I became an expert on this fish. And I worked with a couple other groups to uh, identify and help this fish out, looking to make fish passages or dam removals. And the thing about this alewife fish is that its numbers had dropped 100% in some places or was just a, a remnant of a, a fish run that might still exist. So on Long Island at the time, uh, 2012, when I found this fish, uh, there was only six known remnant runs of alewife left on Long Island, where originally before settlers came here to Long Island, every stream and river had beast fish and others as well, blueback herring, shad, and uh, eels. But one by one, they were all dammed up on Long Island. Every single river and stream was dammed except for one. And it just turns out its, it's name is Alewife Creek. And it holds a, a, a very sufficient run of, of uh, these alewife fish. But <clears throat> I, I started advocating for them and uh, working with other groups. And one group I started working with was Save the Sound. And um, after working with them for a couple of years, they would call me up to find out about this fish, when it was coming in, how's it doing, 
and uh, they they invited me to do a, a, a Spartina grass planting at Sunken Meadow State Park. They were looking to uh, do this work there. They're a group that works with between Connecticut and, and uh, New York for the Long Island Sound, which is a pretty big estuary. So uh, I did it, and that was in 2014. And then uh, a year later, I did it again. And uh, I was pretty good friends with them at the time. And they asked me after everybody had left, hey, Rob, what do you think about this? And I told them, you, you don't know. You don't want to know what I think about this. You don't. They said, yeah, yeah, we do. I says, all right, I think this sucks. And they were aghast. They, were, they, they took a step back. And they're like, why do you think this sucks? I says, well, we had about 40 people here today. And uh, we couldn't plant but an eighth of an acre. And I know you had to have a crew come in here and remove this evasive Phragmites, which was expensive. The permitting was expensive. You got ripped off on buying these plants, but you were able to get them. You got ripped off on getting them delivered here. We can't put in but a couple thousand. You got 8,000 more to go. You're going to have to hire a company to do it. It's going to cost more money. And there's like uh, about 150 acres here that need this work. And on top of that, uh, we're digging these holes and putting these plants in, these plugs. But uh, we're putting fertilizer in there to help them grow which is a no-no in a wetland. And uh, on top of that, I'm up in my knees over mud and I'm getting bit by bugs. And uh, we're stepping on all, all the flora and fauna. We got to do this work at low tide. And uh, I just didn't like it. And they said, hey, Rob, you're an engineer. If you could think of a better way to do this, we're all for it. And I was like, me? I'm an operating engineer. I operate heavy equipment engineer. They said, listen, Rob, if you could think of a better way to do this, we're all for it. I said, all righty then. And I literally went home that night and started thinking that I thought there was a machine that would do this work. Because, you know, we grew up our whole lives and you see one agricultural machine after another. And, uh, you know, you fly in planes and you look down at the ground and you see farm after farm from New York to Florida when I fly. And it's, it's amazing to me how much we could, you know, transform the land to, to grow what we want to grow. But there is no machine that grows seagrass, whether it's Martina grass, which grows on the shoreline and in uh, brackish waters, or eelgrass, which is completely submerged aquatic vegetation. So I really started studying. And uh, I dared to, to believe that I, I could make a machine. So I started researching some of the machines that were made, and there was about 12 of them. Five or six of them were very similar, but all of them were similar in the fact that they were all complete and utter failures. There is no machine that plants vegetation in fresh water or salt water anywhere in the world, except for maybe rice paddies, which is a very controlled, certain particular environment that's man-made. So after studying many of these machines, and I just thought, hey, this, these, all these people that tried, all these groups that tried this, they all tried to reinvent the wheel. Let me study how this works in nature. How does this plant reproduce itself from seeds in nature? And uh, about a year and two months, I studied and researched it. And then uh, clams, 
Mosina Mosina clams, uh, hard clam, kept coming up uh, every time I researched eelgrass, which is a complete submerged aquatic vegetation. And uh, I, I was thinking, you know, there's a correlation here. There's a symbiotic relationship. Uh, and the relationship goes like this. The, the plant produces oxygen and absorbs the excrement from a clam. The clam filters out the water, allowing more sunlight to penetrate so the plant can grow. And I, I kept revolving around that. And uh, it just came to me one night. It was like 1.30 in the morning. I had to be at work at 5.30 and uh, be up and go to work. And uh, I thought, what if I just taped or glued these seeds to a clam? Because I know that clams bury themselves. And uh, that was my eureka moment. And I, I couldn't go to sleep. And I was like, wow, I really have something here. And I got to try it. And uh, shortly thereafter, I uh, I asked uh, my friends at Save the Sound, who's the best person that you know of that works with eelgrass? And they said, Chris Pickle from uh, Cornell Cooperative Extension in Southold, Long Island. So I called him up and I uh, told him what I got. I got this idea. And he said, come on down. I want to talk to you. So I went on down there. and. Uh, he asked me, he's like, how? He kind of cursed a little bit, but he's like, how the F did you think of this? And uh, I explained to him, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an engineer, just a creative person. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to be able to do this. And I, I want to be able to make a machine that does this. And he's like, well, here's your lab space over here. And uh, we'll have some seeds for you. And you can do what you want. And that's how I started. So in 2016, I was uh, gluing seeds to, to clams and uh, throwing them into this tank. And uh, it grew. It grew great. I, I couldn't believe how well it did well it work. And uh, so every year for the last seven years, I've been doing this work in their labs. And uh, luckily enough, I uh, was able to pull it together because I made some decent money at the time. I was able to fund everything myself, and I did a couple, uh, I'm up to four open water plantings now, which is a big deal, you know, because if you could do something in a, in a tank, in a controlled setting, that's one thing. But when you're out in a, the real world, there's, there's a lot of dynamic forces at hand. And, uh, you know, we have predators that eat these eelgrass seeds. They eat clams. We got uh, storms and high tides that shift sand around. and uh, so in 218, I did my first open water planting. It was a very small planting. It was probably about 150 clams with maybe 500 seeds. And we did that work in November. And we came back in June. And there was eelgrass growing. And by the time it, it, it takes, it, it's not growing very tall. It, it's probably about six inches tall. And the, the water's kind of cloudy. And uh, it, it was growing. And then... Another year went by, and we went and checked on it again. But this plant takes two years to grow to maturity, so it was at the about the two year mark from the time I initially planted. It, it grows its roots out in two years, about two feet, and 
it sends up shoots. And then from the first year, it looks just like five or six blades of grass coming up. But the second year, it looks like a bush with maybe 150 to 200 blades of grass growing up. And it was doing fantastic. And, you know, at that point, I, I decided I'm going to patent this. And uh, I'm going to make sure that this work gets done. And I'm going to work on building a machine. I don't know how I'm going to build a machine, but I'm going to try and figure that out. And uh, I've never built a machine before. But now I can say I have. Uh, so the machine I built is pretty unique. Uh, there are other machines that work with clams, uh, clam counters, uh, clam slaughters. And those are machines that we can questions here man because we're i feel like we're we're going into the machine and like <clears throat> i just i talk too much in general that's that it goes with my wife with my kids if i'm giving testimony on this podcast in the group i just so i just sat here and i was biting my tongue the whole time and i i got a couple questions and they're they're like more like you know my mind is just racing as you're saying this stuff so my first question is you put this you, you're super gluing the seed onto a, a living clam shell and the clam you know obviously buries itself and it has a little it has a little snout that it pokes up out of the sand to to filter to feed you know when it when it opens and then they don't feed all the time, so they're just kind of at rest and they'll close. And you said that, you know, from year one to year two, you're talking about a couple of blades of grass to like a bush. So, I mean, ultimately, the first thing that I'm thinking is like, does this thing actually end up protecting the clam in its life cycle? Because it's got to be harder for predators to get after the clam if it's got a whole root system around it, right? I, I, I that's That's just my nutty way of thinking and then the second thing second part b of that question is i'm guessing that if the clam dies that the root system is already significant enough to where it doesn't necessarily need that clam anymore correct uh well the the seed is glued on only one side so that side obviously it can't break through the shell to sprout or germinate as they call it. Uh, so it will only stay adhered to this clam until it sprouts. And then at that point, it's no longer connected to the clam. So the clams do move around. These plants are very durable. And once the roots start growing, uh, it will hold itself in position. But the point is, is to not bury it, the seed too deep or else it won't break the surface and it won't grow. And the ones that are on the surface never grow. So the so the clam, I'm guessing eight to ten inches down in the sand, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. No, no, uh, clams are only you know uh, the clams I use for one are, are hatchery clams. Okay, but they're very small. They're eighteen to thirty millimeters, which uh, it's about an inch to uh, uh, three quarters of an inch, and uh, they only bury themselves about two inches. 
So the thing about a clam is when a clam buries itself, they're, they're the real engineers. They're like the tillers of the soil, like farmers would, would do. When they bury themselves into uh, the sediment, most sediment is uh, what they call sulfide, which is an anoxic environment and uh, isn't conducive for plants to grow. But when that clam buries itself, it's bringing oxygen in and it turns that sulfide into sulfate which is conducive for, it mineralizes the, the sulfide and makes it conducive for plants to grow. Rob, I'll, I'll, I just want to piggyback on what you're saying. And I don't want to, I don't want to stop your stream of thought. We have, um, we have large, uh, um, floating net pin aquaculture as well as sunken net pin aquaculture oyster, like Virginicus oyster, the, the Chesapeake Bay native oyster. And, um, what they have found is in the floating pens, and we've seen this on a couple of different uh, tributaries of, of major of like the Potomac, um, that when these when these oyster farms become established, you have that awful toxic muck on the bottom that you're referring to, and the oyster poop actually has bacteria in it that changes the composition and eats that sludge and you know you're talking four or five years of the place being in operation you'll have a sandy bottom again and then what happens grass starts growing and other things start happening and i'm not i'm not going to say you know i don't want to again i don't want to take it off a tangent but i'm just saying that a lot of the stuff that you're that you're talking about your history with this really rings true with things that I see in the Chesapeake Bay. Now I, I know like our razor clams, when they clam dredge for them, they could be like eight, 10 inches into the sludge, a mature, a big razor clam. And we still allow hydraulic dredging uh, for clams. And I think we're maybe the last state, maybe there's one other state on the Atlantic coast that allows it. But um, it's, it, it makes me sick to my stomach when I see them out there because it's, it's probably, we are not anti-commercial fishing as an association at all. This is probably the most destructive uh, way for, to harvest clams on earth uh, besides dynamite. Um, so anyway, I'm just, you know, I'm sitting here thinking like how you, what, what you thought, how you're working it is you're using two different two different parts of the ecosystem to work together and uh and and help each other out at least for a little bit and i find that fascinating because it it seems most of the time that we we just beat the brakes off of stuff and expect it to be okay but you're you figured out that these two things go together like peas and carrots and let's 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 see what we can and, do with this. Let's figure out how it works in nature. How does this seed of eelgrass uh, grow in nature? How does that work? That's what I wanted to focus on. I wanted to find a concept that I could work with and build a machine on. So the way eelgrass seeds are dispersed are through turtles eat them, can't digest them. Their excrement more than likely uh, is like planting a plant. Same with the the brant duck and other sea ducks. They, they're not able to digest the seed. And therefore, when they, they poop, 
they're, they're kind of planting a seed too. And this was a natural recruitment. But there's also the clam. These seeds are negatively buoyant, which means they'll fall to the bottom of the sea floor. And then every once in a while, there'll be a clam that buries itself. And that seed that falls into that hole, that one grows. And that's something I was able to work with. That's something I, I really thought that, hey, that, that's how it really works in nature, that I can really relate with that. So, and, Rob, you, you started 100, 150 plantings, uh, 100, 150 clams. You, how many was it? It was about 150 clams with about maybe 500 seeds. Okay. You so come back year two and you see these things. You know, take me there, man. Like, what? You had to be like, are you kidding me? Right. I mean, what was your reaction? Well, I knew, you know, two years before, you know, three years before that, I was, I was getting them to grow in the, in the lab. But, you know, growing in a lab is nothing like the real world. But uh, well, I, I learned a, a couple of things. And uh, the thing about a clam is if, uh, and these seeds, the seeds could take one to five months to germinate and sprout. So the glue I needed to use had a hold for that long. So over the course of the months, when the planting's generally done, uh, is in November, and then it's expected to propagate by April. So these clams, <clears throat> uh, when they they sit, well, in the you, one you skipped over something important. What glue did you find that held for five months? Because I, if you see a tying table behind me. Like I need to, I need some of that, right? I need <laughs> well, I, I, there's, there's, there's 5,000 adhesives that I know of, uh, that are in use in the United States. Um, they're in pretty much three categories and most of them are toxic. So I needed to find the non-toxic and something that's biodegradable. I don't want to crap up the environment with anything. So it took me about a month of research and, you know, I was beating my head against the wall, but I found this glue that's made uh, by Caltech and MIT. Uh, it's called blue muscle glue. And they extract the glue from blue muscles, which make a glue because they all adhere to each other. We always see them in clumps and clusters. And they use this glue when they do uh, heart surgery on patients with diabetes. So it eliminates the need for sutures. And, uh, so I, I tried getting free samples of this stuff and, uh, I struck out. I even pretended I was Dr. Joe Schmo, you know, heart surgeon. And I said, I need some samples of this stuff. And they were like, it's $5,000 for five milligrams. That's it. And I was like, wow, that's, that's not going to work. So, uh, you know, I was watching that show. Uh, I don't watch TV too often, but I was watching a show called Tanked. And it's a couple guys from New York that make these elaborate fish tanks. And I happened to see them gluing coral, live corals, to rocks. And I was like, yeah, that's the glue I need. And uh, I use a glue. The brand name is Bulk Reef Supply. The, the type of glue, it's called uh, cyanoacrylate. It's literally super glue. And it's, it's a long-chain molecule glue. Uh, it has very strong holding power. It's patented under Loctite, and uh, it's the glue I wound up using. Is it the best glue? 
Maybe, maybe not. Is there a better glue? Probably. But uh, it works damn well. And the thing about this glue is it's activated with water. And uh, the seeds are always wet. <laughs> well, you must have to, uh, to super glue something together to, that has to work. I just, I just, I was on mute. I just showed Rob like four different packs of Loctite. Um, my so much for my wife's uh, clawfoot tub. We're grow, we're growing eelgrass, hun. Don't get mad at me. Don't get mad. I know you waited for that tub for a long time, but I'm growing some eelgrass. Please continue, oh. Rob. <laughs> so I, uh, when I did make my way into the lab, I, I. You know, ordered some of this glue from uh, Bulk Reef Supply, and uh, I use a thick uh, glue. There's three different types. There's thin, medium, and thick. I use the thick. And uh turns out this, this glue is activated, crazy glue is activated from moisture. So you see that commercial with the guy with the hard hat holding to the beam? It was the moisture that activated that glue. That And, 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 and you know, the thing about crazy glue is it dries in seconds, right? Oh, Rob, that was an old party trick back in the day. We used to stick, we used to stick crazy glue on toilet seats, you know, and you, and, and man, your friend would, you'd wake up at like four o'clock in the morning, one of your housemates, your apartment mates, man, they would be mad. And like, you learned, you learned pretty quick. You know, I feel like I'm going to get sued now. I probably shouldn't have said that, but like you learned pretty quick not to sit on the toilet before just like looking at it real close because it doesn't dry. It really doesn't dry until you press something on it, right? Like that's kind of what it, all I know is it would be a while from when we put it on there and you'd hear the scream. Uh, I, I wasn't and, that cool. I used to put a drop, a drop of Tabasco sauce in my friends that were passed out his mouth and beforehand we would loaded their hands up with shaving cream that was our cruelty as kid growing up oh man listen we've gone off we've gone off the rails there could be kids listening to this and some poor dad's gonna wake up stuck to his toilet so like let's do this ever yeah so back to the seeds all right so we got well now we know what glue you're using i think it's hysterical that you know those guys tanked because my wife and i used to watch that you know, back when we watched TV, it was just kind of one of those shows that you could watch with kids and not have to worry about what was said or, you know, what happened. It was just kind of like good family, whatever. And the kids got you know, to learn fish about involved in the show tanked. And it's, you know, I've always had a fish tank my whole life. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, who like any show that's about fish, I'm going to watch it. Right. So, so you, you got 150 in, you come back, You it's working in a lab. A lab is way different than nature. You come back year two, what do you see? I see a, a tremendous amount of you know, these patches look like small bushes, probably about two feet in diameter. And they're just loaded with these blades of eelgrass. And the scientists that I went with to check on it were telling me how fantastic it was. And they told me they do this broadcast seeding. And at this one area they had years earlier tried using 100,000 seeds and they came back and they didn't have any plants growing except for maybe a couple, and they couldn't really attribute it to their work that they did because they weren't exactly in that spot. So over the course of the, the five months that it could take for this seed to germinate and this, the seeds stuck to that clam with a good bond, a couple things happened. And, and the hydraulic uh, forces at work with the water are incredible. 
from uh, you know king tides, storms, and just general tides moving water around. Uh, sediment will accrue or be stripped away from an area, and the clam that's sitting just a couple inches underneath the surface will bury itself deeper if it's it's losing sediment. And it does that to, you know, they bury themselves to protect from predators. And, uh, and as well as if sand is, uh, sediments accruing, they'll, they'll work their way up and they'll, they'll hold that seed in position. And, uh, I guess I kind of got lucky with that. You know, it just seems like a lot of things fell into place. As well, a clam that's buried near eelgrass will stay there for a very long time. It's very happy. Because a clam without eelgrass to absorb that excrement is kind of like a, a baby in a diaper. When that crap is all around the clam, it agitates the clam. And the clam will pop itself up and move over and find another place to dig itself down. And meanwhile, it's bringing oxygen into that hole it's coming out of, and it's bringing oxygen into the next hole it's digging. And it's, it's a real ecosystem engineer in that aspect. And, uh, but if it has eelgrass there, it will stay there for a long period of time so it doesn't uh, let itself uh, you know, up for predation. It, there's a, there's a, a certain creature called a snail that's a, called a knob whelk that we have in our waters here in New York. And that's what they do. They eat clams. They break that shell open and they stick a little tube in there, a little siphon, and they, they slurp down the clam and then they go to the next one. So when Sam the Clam's getting eaten, his buddies, Harry and Freddie, they know Sam's getting eaten. They know. And what do they do? They dig themselves up. They actually open up their shell, and they have a foot clams, and they, they roll. And they'll roll and roll and roll until they feel they're safe, and then they'll bury themselves. And uh, even though that, that predation occurs where I did this work, the the clam doesn't it, it, the the seeds still grow. The the snail isn't eating the the, the seeds at all, and uh, the crabs don't have the ability to 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 take the the seed off of the clam. But the clam shell will just stay open, and the hinge is still like that. And what it does when it's in that position is it accrues sediment. So the sediment that accrues around that shell is just enough these seeds to still germinate and grow. And, uh, you know, some of the scientists I work with like, oh, no, there's not whelks here. I'm like, it's okay. They're all part of the same deal. They're good. And I explained to them just what I did to you. They're good for the whole ecosystem. And, and uh, I, mean, I really believe in that. So the, the, the restoration work I do is, isn't single species restoration. It's multi-species restoration. So, Okay. Year two, boom. You know, it works. You're you're seeing it work, and you start thinking like, now I got to build a machine. I get it to where we can automate this process. So where what's going on with that? Well, I I kind of, you know, I've been a mechanic my whole life. I've always been pretty creative. I've been a steel fabricator, a sheet metal worker. And I just, in, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew what I wanted to build. And I guess I just built it. 
I had a vision of a, a clear vision of what needed to be done. So when I make these, uh, this product, I'll call it, uh, when I have these seeds glued to these clams, I put them in trays. And then instead of running down to the water and throwing them in, I fill up a, 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 like a, a cooking sheet uh, tray and I fill it all up. And then I put it back in a salt water tank where I was keeping the clams. And they could stay there for a month or so until I'm ready to go deploy them. And uh, so I use these trays and I wanted to be able to take these trays and feed them into a machine. And that's just what I built. So the machine I built, which I haven't run yet, I, I take these trays and I kind of put it on the deck of this machine and I lift it up and they slide down. So it's a gravity fed machine. Uh, it's a conventional machine with a little bit of automation. I built it out of a treadmill and a couple parts from some stainless steel barbecues and a couple wheels that I picked up off the ground. And uh, I, I was able to put it all together. So what I made was a, a gravity-fed eight-row eelgrass sewing machine. So I was going for 10 rows. Any other inventor probably would have just tried to get one row to feed out. But, you know, this this conveyor belt I got was 20 inches wide, and I was thinking I could make 10 rows and uh, make that machine. And uh, I wound up making eight, eight rows. So at one mile an hour running this machine, I could feed uh, 52,800 clams at, uh, at two feet apart per hour. So I could effectively plant five acres an hour. Jesus. Pretty good. But, you know, making that product, you know, the machine I made doesn't glue the seeds to the clam. That's done by hand. Sure. So maybe someday in the future, you know, some genius will figure out a way to automate that part of it. You know, what I'm starting off with is kind of like the, uh, like a horse and carriage. And uh, the horse and carriage actually developed over many, many years to become a Lamborghini. So uh, now I believe. With this method I have, we, we have the ability to lay out these plants in a, in a massive scale. Did and you that's really what's when you you said that was your first planting? 150 clams, four or five hundred germinated, you know, hopefully germinated, but seed, you know, seeds on, well, on the 150 clams. Out of those 500 seeds, uh, maybe a uh, 10% of them germinated. Okay. So that's not too shabby, right? When you're talking about just scattering the seeds out in the water or like hand planting them, you know, which I've seen divers do uh, in some of the coastal bays around here, not super effective. Um, well, that's because of the, the hydrodynamic forces when the hand plant will, you know, rip those seeds right out of there and they'll go to a place where they won't be able to grow. They'll stay on the surface. Or predation they'll be eaten or they'll have uh, microbes that like uh, bacteria that disintegrate the seed so so you you got your first planting year two holy mackerel this works you said you had done four others five others in the beginning well, of the podcast I, i've done uh in 2020 i did uh 
I, I wasn't able to attain proof of concept, which is really what you need when you have an invention. Uh, and I, I went to, uh, it, w- it wasn't something Cornell Cooperative was uh, really geared to do. They kind of did applied science, not new science. So I wound up uh, going over to Stony Brook University uh, and working with a fellow, Brad Peterson. And, you know, we had an agreement to, you know, collaborate with each other. And uh, he's a very prolific scientist and a very busy guy. But, you know, he uh, was able to do, uh, help me out a little bit. So he, he got permits to do this work. And uh, he, he piggybacked it on a, a scientific experiment he was already doing. So his scientific experiment that he was already doing is a method that they use in the United Kingdom to grow eelgrass from seeds, where they take seeds and they, they take about 100 seeds and put it in a, what we call a burlap bag, they call a hessian bag. And then they uh, put soil and 100 seeds in there and they tie it up and they drop them into the water. And that kind of works. Not that great, but it works. And uh, in the United Kingdom, they have a, a very high tidal range of about 25 feet. So the dynamic forces on the, the seafloor are really uh, strong. And they've tried other methods, broadcast seeding, hand planting, and even the method that was uh, developed by Cornell, which is uh, when they do collect these shoots, these reproductive shoots or flowers, as they call with all the seeds in them, They'll put them in a mesh bag with a float and then a rope from there to like a cinder block. And they'll let the seeds fall out over time naturally, which is like another form of broadcast seeding. And it just, you know, just doesn't work in too many spots. It, it, it's just not very successful. You know? So Brad Peterson was doing yeah. this work with, with these with these Hessian bags. And he took my clams with the, the seeds on them and he threw them in the bag. and wound up he murdered all the clams <clears throat> so as a scientific experiment it was a failure because all the clams died which is a no-no but the grass grew but as well i put uh, four thousand clams out with about five seeds on them each and uh that was done in that area but you know brad peterson told me he's not able to give me proof of concept or write a paper and uh you know what am i gonna do so I would like to continue to work with him, but you know he's a busy guy and he's doing his other projects that are funded and I'm not coming to him with money. I'm just coming to him with uh, ideas, which is nice, but really didn't work out. So instead of, you know, uh, fighting with him and I just moved on. So last year, uh, 2021, I, I did 8,000 clams with uh, about 10 seeds each on them. And I did that with our friend, uh, Carl LeBrew with the Nature Conservancy and their permanent property that they have in the Great South Bay. And it was a one acre uh, plot that we put out. And uh, I was just there and it's growing. Now, it's not growing like these bushes would, you know, but it's only in its first year. So it's got some hurdles to overcome. It has, uh, the Great South Bay is uh, riddled with algae blooms, which cloud the water, stops the photosynthesis, and kills off a lot of plants. And then the other thing is the water gets pretty damn warm in the Great South Bay. and It's a 48-mile-long body of water with an average 10-foot depth and only has 
one in life. So, it, uh, you know, those are some of the hurdles to overcome in that area. But it's growing. Will it make it to September, November? We'll have to wait and see. But one thing I did do is uh, I was helping Cornell Cooperative Extension doing this method called tortillas where they take uh, transplants, where they rip them out from one area and they, they weave them into this burlap and they put about 10 of them in there and they, they make like pancakes and the divers go in and they have a pretty good method to do this. It's, it's, it's very efficient. And uh, I had met some uh, science teachers from Hampton Bay High School and I wound up telling them what I'm doing, why I'm there, and I'm looking to help them because they helped me. And they invited me into their classroom. So in uh, November last year, I, I walked into the Hampton Bay High School with about a thousand clams, uh, a whole lot of seeds, and uh, and this glue. And I came up with a, a process to uh, for these for these students to glue the seeds without gluing their faces shut. I had developed tools to pick up seeds with vacuum tools, pick them up, drop them, pick up clams with a vacuum tool. And so I'm doing this work mostly by myself and I, I need to be both efficient and fast, but that's not something I could bring into a classroom. So I, uh, I did this work in the classroom with the, I bought these mats from the dollar store and I laid out a, a strip of this, this glue. And I showed them how they could uh, slide the clam on the, onto the glue, dab it a little bit. And then I came up with a method for them to uh, like a screen that holds all the seeds. They dip it on the seeds and then they put it back on a tray. And it was about 25 students in an hour and 20 minutes. They, they performed a thousand twenty four clams. And those went into the Great South Bay. And I, I was so happy. That was like the happiest time I've had throughout this whole ordeal that I've been going through doing this work. You know, I got a lot of no's, rejections, of looking for grant money and help and funding. I just got a lot of no's. But with these kids, they were engaged. And I got to talk to them before we did this work. And I, I was so happy to, to say what I, I was, what was on my mind. I, I had a teacher that introduced me to the class. And uh, I didn't see the kids being too engaged about eelgrass and that. And I was thinking while these kids were, were listening to this teacher, how their whole lives they've been hearing about climate change because they're all about 15, 16, 17 years old. And you know, it's not something I heard my whole life, but I was thinking, boy, these kids have been hearing it their whole lives. So I addressed that when I talked to them. I said, you know, you, you, you kids have been hearing about this your whole lives, whether climate change is real, whether it's fake. Are this, these studies that they're doing, or, or is it man-made? Is it natural? And and I said today we're not talking about that. We're not going to discuss that. Today we're doing an action. Today we're restoring eelgrass, and we're going to do it with this method I invented. And they were really excited about it. And uh, they actually made a video. That, I didn't take any pictures of the students because I didn't want to have any problems. But they did a little YouTube video. And if you want to see a YouTube video that of, of students doing this work, uh, you would just have to look up uh, Eelgrass Restoration Projects and the name Robert. And it will pop up and you'll see these kids. It's a, it's, it's a little video. It's about a minute long. And uh, we were all wearing masks because of COVID at the time. But uh, they were really happy. 
And they were so happy about it. The teacher called me up and said, when are you coming back? My kids won't stop talking about you. And I did go back. And I went back this past March. And I was able to get a couple seeds from uh, about 8,000 seeds from Stony Brook, Brad Peterson. And uh, I walked back into the classroom. And but this time, I felt bad that the students did this work and they didn't have the opportunity to go out on the water and throw them in. But they did have saltwater tanks in their classroom. So I decided when these kids got the hang of it again, I would hand them a hatchery clam and ask them to put five seeds with the least amount of glue. And then when they were done, to throw them into the tank. And they really got a kick out of that. So as time went on, they, they got to see the clams uh, bury themselves. And then sprouts came up and uh, they got to witness the whole thing. And uh, they were pretty engaged. And Rob, I'm and not teasing you, but you're their Jacques Cousteau, right? From the beginning, I mean, from the beginning of the podcast, like, <clears throat> you know, you, you run into you run into thousands and thousands and thousands of people throughout your life. Um, I by no means take credit for this. I mean, this was a special kid, but we had a kid doing an oyster project for us a zillion years ago. And he, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a Navy fighter pilot. He, he graduated wow. with high honors, highest honors from the Naval Academy. He's the top 1% of the 1%. He got like his Eagle Scout badge from doing an oyster pro, and he probably—I guarantee—I ain't Jacques Cousteau to him. Like I'm nobody with all of everyone he's run into his life. But you know, you you just you kind of feed, you know, that give him a little bit of direction, a little bit of knowledge, and like off to the races. And that's why I think that's why we do a lot of what we do at the Guides Association because like everyone says like I just want my kids and my grandkids to be able to see what it was like. You know, that's why we fight for fish so hard because it's just it's heartbreaking that I don't want to be the old guy saying it used to be like this. So here you are and it's look it's the same story everywhere, right? Like there's no funding it's hard to get people to believe in you, um, you know, especially when they're scientists and they're trained. And I never went to college. I did trade school. And when I was in high school, like in school, I really never paid attention. I, I didn't get good grades. Uh, that was on purpose. I just didn't care for school. But I did learn one thing from school, from a substitute teacher that came into the class. The one day I wasn't cutting out of school. And uh, he explained to me in the class that he couldn't teach this English class or a history class, whatever it was. He was going to tell us about what he knew in life. And this guy, he grabbed my attention. And it's this, uh, I'm going to give this advice to everybody. You'll never be the best at anything your whole life. And if you are the best, it's only going to be a, for a short amount of time till someone better comes along. And he described it as a, as a heavyweight boxer. There's only one best, and they only hold that title until someone better comes along. But it, it was devastating to hear that. No one ever, ever shocked me before. Like, I was shocked to hear that. I felt like crap. And uh, he went on to continue to say that, uh, however, whatever you do in life that you're passionate about, that you're interested in, Try your best. 
And more often than not, when you fail at doing something, you'll come to realize you didn't try your best. So although you might not ever be the best at something, you could always try your best. And, and there's a lot of respect in that. And it's a noble thing. The night before uh, I was talking to our chairman, board members, some of the other officers, you know, our executive director, everything, uh, the, the night before the striped bass hearing and, or maybe it was a couple of days before the striped bass hearing and, and, um, and I put up a, it was either a blog post or a social media post. And I just said, look, we left it all on the field. There isn't one thing that we could have done to put it in a better position. We did there. So like my whole goal, and I talked to Jenks, uh, Peter Jenkins, our chairman about this a lot is I said, uh, I think the meeting was, um, you know, I don't remember. I don't remember what day of the week it was on. Say it was on a Wednesday. And I said, I just want to wake up Thursday morning and look in the mirror and be okay. You know, like, because if we lost, it would have been my friends losing their jobs. And I, and that's a lot of responsibility when it's, when it's your friends and, and you know, their families and you know, their kids and you know, their wives. And it's like all on the line, you know, they're, and, and, uh, and, you know, that's, that's what I did the next morning. Uh, I looked in the mirror and I said, all right, I'm okay with it. And I think that's kind of what you're telling in a, in a roundabout way, what you're telling, you know, our listeners, I, I am also not the smartest guy. I am also not trained in what I do, but I just said, somebody has got to do it. And, uh, and, and there's a lot of people out there that are smarter than me. Um, the one thing that I can say is there's probably not a lot of people that are going to work harder than me. And you can, you can make up a lot. You can make up for that formal training and all the other stuff by just grinding every day. And I think that's, I think that's a big part of what I learned about you today is just you grind and, and you're not going to let this go. And, you know, you, you, you think you got lightning in a bottle, you're seeing, you're seeing some pretty darn good things happen. And, uh, and, you know, I, I really enjoyed this. I, I, I loved hearing your story. Um, more people need to be like, you know, you, uh, I don't know how else to say it. Like more people need to be brave enough to roll up their sleeves and say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to try and help. Um, and, you know, thank you for doing that. Uh, I look forward to, I look forward to talking to Carl and seeing where this is going. And, um, and I know habitat is a big part of where the guides association is going and eelgrass is without a doubt, critical, critical top, top two or three critical habitats for tons of our members. Um, and, you know, I, I, I just look forward to finding, finding ways that we can collaborate and get the word out and, and, and try to try to lift each other up in this battle for conservation, because, you know, we can save all the fish that we want. If the babies don't have anywhere to live, that's not good. That's, that's, that's not great. And, uh, 
and and you can build all the habitat you want and if there's no damn fish left <laughs> that's not great either you know what I mean? like everything there's there's something here i guess that's what i'm saying um i would like to explain one thing uh sure and uh it has to do with my vision okay and it's the word i i try not to just say because you know some people could sound kind of corny uh but i have a vision of how to restore this habitat and you know we're, i i don't think i need to explain how important it is to have your grants but uh, but how to do that so I, I I did a presentation with uh, uh, Save the Sound, and I, I was telling them about what I've been doing, kind of like what I'm doing with you. And uh, I said, so my company, say I could plant 100 acres a year. And, uh, that'd be great, wouldn't it? And they all agreed that it, that would be great. And I, I explained that that's not going to do it. That's not enough. 100 acres a year isn't enough. Eelgrass has been lost worldwide by 30 to 50%. It's declining worldwide by 7% a year. Here in the Great South Bay and in Long Island, we've lost 50% of the eelgrass in 20 years. So what do we do? Uh, what we do, or what I could do, is if we can get the Bayman and the shellfish farmers to get a carbon credit for growing an acre of eelgrass, that's how we do it. It's a capitalist way. If they're going to pay out for blue carbon credits, which is uh, seagrass, because if it's you know its services, it, it, it sequesters carbon and uh, it produces oxygen. And if we can get uh, these these shellfish farmers and Bayman, because they're the ones that work on the water, and nobody's going to straighten out our waters better than them. Because they're going to do the work. If they can make a dollar growing an acre of eelgrass, they're going to do it. And they're going to do it to make that dollar. And they're also going to do it because they know having eelgrass around their shellfish farms and around where they, they, they hand clam, it's going to be productive for them. And that's my vision is that's how you do it. That, that's my vision that I, I want to carry on. That, well, that is awesome. That is awesome, Rob. And, um, and, you know, let's, let's figure something out where over the winter, uh, you know, we can get an update from you. Let tell tell us how, how all the grass is doing about the plans for the new plantings, maybe a couple of more high schools jumped on and, uh, you know, just absolutely wish you the best. Um, thank you for taking the time tonight to 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 share all your experiences 